I want to start off by saying, uh, well, first of all, welcome to this podcast project. I want to start off by saying that I feel wholly inadequate analyzing this show, as I'm sure that my co-hosts will agree. This is a passion project, first and foremost. Uh, my name is Vic, and I run a company in Los Angeles called Alternate Thursdays. We make podcasts. And one of the first original projects that I wanted to do was a soprano show. I didn't know how to do it. I thought about it. I reached out to a bunch of different people, and it just, nothing felt right. And then uh, I met a guy named John. Say hi, John. Hi there. John runs a Instagram handle called Sopranosgram, and I discovered it because I follow a musician. Her name is Naya, fantastic singer. She's a, a mutual fan of the show and, and found our page. Uh, she started tagging us in multiple posts of hers, wearing the Sopranos jacket. and That's how I found you. I, I think she was on tour and she was binging the show and she kept on uh, showing these stories of episodes she was watching. I kept on seeing these at Sopranosgram handles or these uh, the, tagged and everything. So I checked out your feed. I thought it was hilarious and it, it gave a whole bunch of color and context to the show in the light of 2017 and 2018. So on one rainy Los Angeles day, I decided to email the Sopranos Graham handle. There was, a, I think you had the email on your bio, right? Yeah. Or, yeah. 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 And so I emailed and I had no idea where you lived. I had no idea who you were. I basically was like, hey, I'm trying to get this Sopranos podcast off the ground and I noticed that we share an interest in this singer and I never expected to hear from anybody. I was just like, you know, it's just like one of those cold emails people send in the world and they go and they die. Um, but the next day you called me and you left a voicemail and so we met and the long story short, we got together a few weeks ago and I think we were kindred spirits and we both love the show. I think between the two of us, and I'm going to have you introduce your friend here in a second, but between the two of us, it's safe to say that we've seen the show at least 20 times. I would say, yeah, at, at least. And so yeah. break, so, down, break down Sopranos Graham. And, Sopranos and, Graham really isn't uh, just me. It's also my uh, better half. I guess that sounds good. <laughs> sure. Hey, Go uh, Justin. Um, gosh, what about a year and a half ago? Yeah, it's been it's been like two years. We uh, we started the page. Honestly, uh, it's it's interesting. So I I For started our own personal enjoyment. I, I started the page, and um, you know, slow. John and I worked together, and slowly, uh, you know, John was brought into the fold and John was kind of the impetus for us to turn this more into a meme page rather than just like a clip posting page. And then it just took off. It was so much fun to relate, you know, memes and bring it back to the Sopranos to what's going on currently today and just have a lot of fun with it. But it's funny. I set up that email account and I didn't check that. I totally forgot that we even created it. And I randomly one day was like, oh, I'll log in, see if anybody's messaged. And then, you know, we went in and, you know, 90% of it was just spam. People just trying to get us to become like influencers and pitch, you know, random products, whatever. And then, you know, we found you and John reached out. Yeah, fast forward to now and close to 700 posts and 25, 26,000 fans. Yeah, and growing. Yeah. it's uh, become bigger than us. Yeah. Uh, and it's serendipitously is connected us recently with a lot of really interesting people and you being the most interesting and sort of the the avenue to create this show no it's awesome so we're, Look, we're honored I, I, that you would even consider us to have us here and to work this project with you it's my pleasure and i look forward to doing it look it's um 
I don't want to say we're a dying breed, but um, there's not enough people talking about how great this show is. And um, one of my personal heroes, so anybody that knows me really well knows that I have a Mount Rushmore of people that kind of I just have identified with and respected and, and admired for so long. And uh, David Chase is one of them. And uh, Rick Rubin is another one. Um, he's a mm. music music producer, for those that don't know. And look, again, I want to emphasize that we're not trying to reinvent the wheel, not even really trying to be a Cliff Notes version for people. Uh, I think that's already been done. There's a lot, forget about podcasts. There's actually like a corpus of writing on the internet that is sizable about the show. Um, there are people that are far more academic about it than I think we will be, although I think we'll try to rise up to, to their standards standard, but there's a website that I found invaluable in all of my time, even pre-podcast, which is called Sopranos Autopsy, mm, um, yeah, which is good. a site that I'm going to be mentioning and, and uh, citing heavily in this podcast. And along the way, I want to emphasize too that any any resources that you guys use or any sources that you have, let's be sure to shout them out because I think that listeners will appreciate it. And I think that the creators of these sites and of these, um, I guess, pieces of content will appreciate it because a lot of them are labors of love. Mm. Um, they're projects that were made because because they love the show, because they love the creators, because they love uh, James Gandolfini and all the actors that are in the show. So a lot of the stuff that you see on the internet, a lot of the stuff that you hear, including this podcast, is born from a, a, an appreciation and an admiration for the show. So yeah. I want to get that off the bat. Okay. That being said, we're going to try to do three things differently than some of the other stuff that's out there because we want to engage you, the listener, and the community of Sopranos fans, and the community of people that haven't seen the show and could benefit from sort of like a deep dive nerd out that we're going to give them. And to that effect, we're going to have a hotline that you can call. The hotline bing. The hotline bing. <laughs> if you will. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Did, you, did you practice that or is that, nope, was that spontaneous? No, just, just got it here. I like that. Shout out to Drake. We want listener participation. We'll air your question and then we'll uh, analyze it. We'll consider it and analyze it. The number is 424-625-9776. Another thing that we're going to endeavor to do, we have a plan in place and we're going to try to build on it, is we're going to try and include cast, crew, and notable fan participation in the show. So on a week-to-week -week basis, we might have a guest. They might be called in. We might call them up or they might be in the studio. We're going to figure it out. It's going to be TBD. But our goal is to kind of three-dimensionalize this project. It's not just two or three fans talking about the show, but we're going to try to bring some perspective from people who were there, both in front of the camera and perhaps behind the camera. And then through your guys' experience with Sopranos Graham, you've, you've met uh, countless fans of the show who have some notoriety, and we're going to see if they would like to come on and give their takes or give their thoughts on the show. Sure. Robert Eller's second grade math teacher has been talking to us and no, I'm just kidding. I love, well, yeah. anybody that tenuous, so we're, we're open. Like if you were a janitor on the show in Silver Cup Studios, if you had like a temp job there and you were answering phones for a week and you would like to be on the podcast, we'd love to have you because you probably have a perspective that few people have. So I think we all have different stories how The Sopranos became sort of an obsession. For, for me, my personal story with The Sopranos, growing up, when it first came out, I wasn't as attached to the show as I am now. Um, ironically, I had a, a friend that I grew up with whose uh, parents were Carmela and Tony. It was an Italian family. The guy drove a convertible car, smoked cigars, uh, dysfunctional. And I remember seeing so many parallels to what the show was. But I, I really didn't become an obsessed fan until about three years ago. Uh, and watching the show from when it was 2000 or 1999 to now, 
it's a completely different show uh, to yeah, me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what was the trigger point three years ago? I, I think initially it was uh, Justin coming to me and saying, you know, you've got a knack for making memes. This is an untapped market. You should give this show another look. And then it sort of just took me over again. I, I watched about four or five episodes and then I cleared the season within a week. And Justin, how did you get into the show? So I've always been a huge fan of just mob movies in general. I've probably seen Goodfellas more times than I've watched The Sopranos. Wow. And and as you know, there's probably a good 20 to 25 overlapping characters on both shows. So I, I've always been into mob movies, Goodfellas, Casino, I mean, the Robert De Niro, Martin Scorsese movies, Godfathers, loved them all. And, you know, I was always a little hesitant to watch The Sopranos. I had seen a couple of clips and I, I thought it was kind of campy. I, I just, I, I was kind of being contrarian and just not wanting to watch watch it and then I watched like the pilot episode and the next episode and I probably binged through it in a good two three weeks watched the entire series I I also didn't watch it you know when it was live so I didn't get it from that perspective I watched it you know once once kind of the whole binge watching thing came came to life and you know I just got obsessed with it I watched it I I, I think I'm like you guys probably watched it about 20 times over and over and over and each time you watch it I feel like you can pick up some little nuance that gives you you know a little bit more clarity into the show and it's just so brilliant each time you watch it you find a little nugget that just shows you why this is the best show that was ever created even in preparing for this podcast I, I, I thought I would be so t- over the pilot and there are many aspects of it actually that I had forgotten even though I've watched it so many times little tiny nuances with that let's jump in the the show started season one, episode one, directed by David Chase and written by David Chase. Cinematography by Alec Sakharov. The original air date, January 10th of 1999. I found a headline from January 10th, 1999, just to kind of contextualize for you where we are, sense of place and time. There was a article in the New York Times on that day talking about the Gambino family and their practice, I guess, if you will, of skimming off of construction projects in Manhattan. So the show right off the bat is taking place in a very real time under very real circumstances. I thought that was kind of cool. I actually found that today in preparation for this, and I thought it was a nice tie-in. One of the themes that we'll have about the show as we go on is this sense of realness, how it's above television, it's even above cinema in many ways. There's this visceralness to it, and that article kind of hit home. Um, John, you told me something interesting when we first met about the pilot. It came out in 1999, but it was actually filmed much earlier. That's correct. Uh, Through my research, it's my understanding uh, David Chase initially was turned down by four different networks. Um, He had pitched this to Fox and actually received a salary to create the first pilot and nothing had happened. Um, Nothing was produced from that. And it was at that point that HBO stepped in and I believe reimbursed Fox for the price of the pilot. And I feel like they that reimbursed was, the, the production company, they, they Brillstein did. Gray. Brillstein Gray. I feel like that was the best thing for the happen to the yeah, show. Yeah. Um, that's the difference when you get into HBO. There's no interruptions. There aren't any significant rhythms or cliffhangers and scene changes. And to David Chase's own accord, it's a very slow moving show. And it was just the perfect home 
yeah, to, and to if, start the and Sopranos. And if you've ever watched any of the Sopranos episodes on A&E, you'll, you'll definitely know that HBO is the home for it because it it's it loses a little bit without the cursing and with the the commercial breaks i feel like yeah the 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 commercial pauses the whole need to have with network tv and like non hbo tv i guess we can call it you need to have these cliffhangers and these climaxes you didn't need that with the show it was just in slow brewing tension you know yeah. hbo yeah. was the perfect home i mm-hmm. think i think that the video uh you sent me that uh, where peter bogdanovich is interviewing david chase david chase admits that as much like this would have been a very different show if we had to have those beats you yeah. know if we had to have those pauses um he, he didn't he didn't seem to think that he would have cared for making a show like that he called it a soapy show mm-hmm. um but he didn't mean that he said I, i'm quoting him it's not soap isn't necessarily pejorative but he was thinking in terms of like well if i can't make this the way that i want to make it then i just want to make it into a movie and he tried to get it into he tried, did. tried to try to get them to pay for an additional 30 or 45 minutes of studio time because the the premise of a mobster passing out at a family barbecue and seeking therapy to understand why in itself seems like it'd be a good premise of a movie but yeah no, uh, to have that evolve from there i want to touch on the opening credits you're going to see the opening credits for those of you that haven't watched it you're going to see it every single episode uh, only one thing changes which we won't say for those that haven't seen it but it's a pretty consistent part of the show i am such a nerd that i actually watch it every time because it gives me a little bit it kind of sets me in the in the zone it's sort of like pregame, you know, before you like, you know, before you go out and play, you know, basketball analogy, which you might hear a lot of, you know, you, you shoot a few free throws before you go on the court. Same idea. Um, I found, so I read this book uh, a few years ago called Difficult Men by Brett Martin. I highly recommend it. He basically breaks down all of the protagonists in the shows that started with The Sopranos. So it goes, it starts with The Sopranos and then it goes all the way through to most recently Walter White and a Mm. couple of other Mm antiheroes. And there's a caption from the book that I think kind of summarizes the whole intro beautifully. I'd never considered it this way. To me, I see... You know, you see um, Tony coming out of the Holland Tunnel. You see the turnpike. You know, you see smoke. You see rearview mirrors. The way that the book describes it, and I'm going to quote them now, is that it's a, quote, representation of Italian-American progress in New Jersey from the working-class apartments of Newark's old North Ward up Bloomfield Avenue into starter homes and in the Oranges, Glen Ridge, Verona, and finally to the promised land of the Caldwells. Now, I had never considered that before. Basically, he's trying to show you the the steps of progress to make it as an Italian in mm-hmm. New Jersey. But this was a beautiful summation for someone who's seen it 10 times. Because to me, it's basically showing beautiful New York City, Manhattan, big, bright lights and potential and opportunity to the shithole that is New Jersey, otherwise known as the armpit of America. But this kind of contextualizes it. What do you guys think of that? Yeah, I've I've never really thought of it that way, but that makes sense. And it's kind of like rising up in the ranks and becoming king. I mean, yeah. he literally sits on a ca- in a castle on a hill. I mean, it doesn't get any more, you know. So I looked up Newark Mm -hmm. is downtown. There is a street called Bloomfield Avenue, and it goes right into the heart of Newark. And if you follow Bloomfield Avenue up, it is north. Uh, So the geography is Newark is positioned south, and Bloomfield Avenue kind of goes north west. It literally goes through all of these cities, and then it hits North Caldwell, which is where Tony's yeah. house is, or the house that, that Tony and his family lived in. So I had never looked at that before. That's so this was, drive is actually an accurate 
depiction of what you would see if you were driving to North it, Collinwood? It's not. So there's this, there's a tour in New York that you can do. They pick you up in Bryant Park and they drive you to all the spots that you see on all the frames. And it's actually very haphazard and scattered, which is what you would think that they would take you on the actual drive, but it's not. It's there's there's a part of it in South Jersey. There's a piece from like East Jersey, but you eventually see all these houses and all these neighborhoods in Pizza Land. Pizza Land is along or on that route that they're well, he's talking. Got, he's got to make his stops. He's got to make his stops. Yeah, <laughs> but again, that's sort of just a. It's the reason I'm taking all this time to like talk about the intro is because to me it's just an example of how intentional everything is and how specific everything is and how just carefully manicured the show is. To me, watching. The, to me, watching the intro is almost like watching a little mini movie or a music video. Mm-hmm. And on the music note, it, David Chase had mentioned that he originally wanted to do a different song every week uh, and that many songs were considered, uh, some from The Kinks, Elvis Costello, even Stephen Van Zant, which would have been interesting mm. if Silvio had an intro song. Stephen Van Zant was actually... A big deal. He, they wanted him to be Tony Soprano for yeah. a minute. Yeah, you know he was like, he uh, he was very important to, uh, to the show and to to David Chase. Obviously, the one thing I will say about the song that was chosen, I heard that it was uh, for anybody who lives in LA and listens to KCRW will appreciate this. I listen to MBE every morning. I've listened to it for years and years and years. That's where he discovered the song. The song is called. Do we know what the song is called? I know the was band the is song, A3? It's A three. Yeah, the song is A three. Got yourself a gun. Mm-hmm. Is the title and he had heard it on this little independent radio station which is still going strong by the way KCRW the show's called Morning Becomes Eclectic and he he auditioned a bunch of stuff like you said but this one just worked to go to HBO and be like I'm going to pick this obscure song from this British band says a lot about his confidence and it was obscure, right? The Sopranos put that song on the map. Oh, for as, sure. As far as for I can sure. tell, right? I mean, it was an indie. Yeah. It was an indie band, and obviously, I don't. As far as I know, the research that I did, they didn't have any other hits. They weren't a one-hit wonder per se, but they weren't touring like Bruce Springsteen. Let's just put it that they way. They did that one. They're like mic drop. We got it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, that's all you need, right? Yeah. So we got the opening credits out of the way. Thank you to Brett Martin for his amazing book for kind of just summarizing and encapsulating what that is. Let's talk about the establishing shot. Now, John, you actually pointed me to this, and uh, I've been thinking about it ever since we met. I love that I put that image in your head. Yeah. Most most shows, when you have an establishing shot for a pilot, you usually see a city, you usually see a skyline, maybe a neighborhood, maybe a house. But in this particular show, what we see is Tony's head in between the legs of a nude statue. And without getting overly analytical, but I guess we want to get overly analytical, so I guess I'll get overly analytical. That kind of summarizes in a minute, exactly the kind of show that this is going to be, which is unlike anything that you've ever seen before. Correct. Okay. Thoughts on that opening establishing shot? Yeah, I, and I've always sort of internalized this, but I had mentioned the first time we sat down to watch the show that I envisioned that as sort of David Chase giving birth to Tony <laughs> Soprano and the show in, in a very twisted metaphor. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's a unique way to, to open up the show and... There's many ways you could look at it, uh, but coming back to it and watching it for the fourth or fifth time, it it's a, a new way to observe the, the beginning of, of such a timeless show. 
Yeah, and I feel like David Chase puts in all these little Easter eggs, and it kind of speaks to what the show's about, where there's a complete thought about this being a comedy and a drama at the same time, where sometimes they'll they'll completely have just jokes that run on for hours and people breaking balls, and at the same time, there'll be something serious. And I think David Chase puts in these little Easter eggs just like that, where maybe that's something that, okay— This is real. You know, this is Tony being born. This is the show starting. This is the show being created by David Chase. But at the same time, it's also something where, oh, get the fuck out of here. What are you talking about? You know, it can be something where you can really dive deep and look into it. But at the same time, it's something that you can just gloss right over. And I think that's the brilliance of David Chase. You know, it could have started in... Melfi's office, the show. That could have been the establishing shot because so much of the show happens there. It could have started in the car, you know, Tony driving to his appointment, but they chose this. It's just, again, it's a unique way to kind of not only, not necessarily stick your finger up at the establishment, but kind of just say, look, we're going to be marching to the beat of our own drum. And I think that's what a lot of the list, what a lot of the fans love about the show. It was gratuitous in an artistic way. Yeah. And another thing that it established for me and many people too, and I got this insight from, again, I want to emphasize this uh, Sopranos autopsy website, amazing writer. He talked about this idea of the show being the two elements of the show that really stand out are the quiet and the ambiguity. There's a lot of quiet and there's a lot of ambiguity in the show. And one of the ways that's able to be carried off or, you know, one of the ways that's able to be executed is because James Gandolfini is so amazing Mm. in silence. His eyes, his gestures, his mouth movements. So all the credit in the world to him. But that is a theme that I think we're yeah. gonna we're gonna be exploring on is like the actually the script as well written as it was, there was a lot of times when there was just actually nothing really happening. Yeah. So in in uh in clinical psychology actually um Which is your background by the way. Yeah, right? that's I, I do have a background in clinical psychology. So there is a you know in different tools used to help treat people, they're called interventions. So one intervention can just be laying it all on the table and saying what's going on with somebody. Another tool and another intervention that therapists use is just silence, is letting the moment speak for itself, letting somebody process what's going on. And I feel like David Chase uses that phenomenally. Like that's a complete part of the show. And and we can allude to it later on when we watch the later episodes. I feel but even like in the very be... beginning, Melfi, she sits them down. She yep. says, Mr. Soprano, she sits down and she's quiet. Yep. She's waiting. Yep. And then the camera, the, they just keep cutting back and forth to each other and she doesn't crack. Absolutely. And that's deliberate. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Sometimes you feel like you might not have anything to say, but everybody has something to say. Everybody has something on their mind. And there's episodes where Tony's like, I got nothing to talk about. And then it'll go on and then he'll just spill his guts later on in the same scene five seconds later. You know, people are uncomfortable with silence. And I think that it's it's made to perfect use in the show. Well, another thing that uh, you, you just makes you realize is that he's a, t- he's a tough guy. Mm-hmm. He's a strong, silent type, right, which we're going to get into. But... Even he cracked. Everybody will talk in that room. It can break down the strongest of men, and it can break down the weakest of men. So it was nice to see kind of it all fall apart, but it fell apart in silence. Yeah. Um, David Chase also self-admittedly said he'd been in therapy since his 30s. Yeah. He was inspired. To, That's yeah, what yeah. Inspired and and they, they asked him uh, in an interview saying, you know, do you have a therapist, do you have a consultant on the show? He's like, I've been in therapy for 30 years. I don't, I don't need a consultant. I am the consultant. Yeah. I'll, yep. save, I'll save the studio <laughs> yep. some money on that. Yeah. So, moving along, we learn what kind of work Tony Soprano does. How are you feeling now? Good. Fine. Back at work. 
line of work are you in? Waste management consultant. She asks him, and he and he says he's a waste management consultant, which to me was a double entendre because that's obviously his front, right? Mm. We, we, we have some semblance. Even if you haven't watched the show before, you know that it's about a, a mob boss who's stressed out and needs a therapist. Yeah. So we know that waste management is a front. But to me, I always kind of looked at it also as a, of all the things they, he could have had as his front, it was waste management, which in a way was, you know, a Tony's looking, the way he viewed the world was he was purging People like mm. like this character that we're going to talk about, Mahaffey, degenerate gamblers, people that were on the bottom rungs of society. He kind of had a way of handling them, you know, getting rid of them. Mm. Did you, is, it, is that is that it's too? It's a dirty business. Yeah. Yeah. There are probably a lot of parallels to waste management and <laughs> yeah. what Tony actually does. He's so candid; like he's given that answer so quickly before too. It's oh, waste management consultant, very coached. Yeah, very coached. And then there's this whole idea. I want to get your guys' take on it because it's uh, it, it kind of brings you into 2018 as well. It shows you that the show is, is dated, but in many ways, a lot of the themes are very relevant today. He starts to go on once she finds out that he's in waste management. I don't know. The morning of the day I got sick, I've been thinking. It's good to be in something from the ground floor. I came too late for that. I know. But lately, I'm getting the feeling that I came in at the end. The best is over. You know, this thing that he's in, he's in on the ground floor. And there's this whole idea that it's too late. I, it gets me wondering, where is Tony when placed in the context of the mafia in its heyday? Did that video you sent again, David Chase mentions that when he went back and watched The Godfather, his opinion was that uh, Michael Corleone and his dad, they were depressed. You know, they, they were in it too late. There was like, there's this downward trend. I don't know. What do you guys make of that? Yeah, they kind of uh, talk about it. I, I believe in the pilot episode, or it could be very early on in the series where they have um, the TV show that they're all watching where um, they're interviewing somebody and he says, you know, this is basically the end of the mafia, but make no mistake, the mafia is still alive, although they're kind of wounded and licking their wounds, they're still they're still a presence. So I I mean I think the show makes makes it work. You know, the, it's not as strong as it used to be. There's no there's no mansion in Lake Tahoe. There's no compound. It's not the Godfather. Right. But you know, Tony is still a presence. He's still a famous figure. People in New Jersey know who he is. He's you know the mafia still carries some weight, although it you know they don't have multiple senators in their pocket like the Godfather would have you think. But I, I do think it's kind of on its last legs. And to me, the the show is, you know, it, it, he mentions that in, in the pilot episode. I think it kind of carries that throughout the show. You know, it's a ton of confidence, yeah. ton of confidence um, on David Chase's part to start a show and be like, we're at the end. And makes the character so relatable to anyone that's viewing it. Who totally. Feels that way at some point in their life. It was it was a way that one of the early ways that David Chase kind of said, hey, look, this guy's a mafioso, but he's just a dude, mm -hmm. you know, he's yeah. a dad, which let's get to that. So where do we go from Melfi's office? Kind of. So the pilot episode is kind of giving us a lay of the land, right? We know that there's this guy named Tony. We know that there's he's in a shrink's office and he's starting to open up about his problems, which to me was a great device to kind of like take you to all these other mm -hmm. windows in his world. He mentions uh, standards. He's upset about standards. You know, a time when people were tough and resilient and strong and built things. I found it very interesting that the camera then cuts to AJ. Okay. <laughs> Did you guys catch that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's like, you know, the heir to his throne. Yeah. <laughs> what's wrong with everybody? 
Cut to AJ, who we find out is 13. It's his birthday. Context for where we are here, we know that he has a sister and she's a teenager, so Tony's a parent, he's got two kids, right? There's a song in the kitchen playing with Hunter, who is Meadow's friend, and David Chase's daughter. David Chase's daughter. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. So we see kind of what's going on in the kitchen, and there's a song playing that's called Shame, Shame, Shame by Shirley and Company, which interestingly was their lone hit. But you go from Tony complaining about a time when people were tough, cutting to his son, and that song, Shame, Shame, Shame. The physical embodiment of Tony's shame. So we're introduced to the ducks. What do we want to say about the ducks? Like, I, I mean, the ducks. Fucking ducks. Not those goddamn ducks. <laughs> There's ducks. They've been poured over. They've been talked about. Tony's got these ducks, and these ducks kind of symbolize kind of what he's been feeling, and they are the, the reason for his panic attack. Is that? Yeah. Accurate or they're Tell us Dr. Justin. <laughs> no, they're not they're not the reason. I mean, I think that they're they're a metaphor yeah. for him, you know, losing control and losing a grasp on his family and I think also losing control of the mafia's power. You know, he was at that time, you know, we kind of start the show uh, you know, Jackie the main leader is, is you know, sick, and there's still a behind-the-scenes power struggle. So I think, you know, he he kind of talks about his losing his family, and that's what Dr. Melfi brings up during the sessions, but I think that there's the bigger picture of his family and his other family, where he feels like he's kind of, you know, losing a tight grip on both. And the ducks flying away, you know, puts that fear in him, and he loves, he loves it when they're there, but then he's so sad when they're gone. So Tony comes in, and Carmelo's trying to get his attention, and she says, hello, Birdman, hello. Do we know what that reference is? Or is she referring to the fact that he just likes the birds? Because He's me, looking at a book about birds. Uh, ah, yeah. that reference predates the movie and the rapper. So, <laughs> so it Shout is. Out to Birdman. I I missed that. So Tony's looking at a book of birds. Yeah, he has, and as we'll get to know Tony, he has a a unique love for animals. And yeah, you, yeah. you'll see that throughout the yeah. show. And yeah, he, it was a book about birds. If you want to take another look. So now we're introduced to Chris and Tony. Chris is Tony's nephew. Cousin, nephew, cousin, nephew. We don't really know. Something. We're gonna, I we're mean, gonna iron it out over time. I think. I yeah. think that there's a lot of uh, convolution He's, in what Italian Americans consider relations. But Tony considers him family. Yes, like a son. He considers him blood. Whether he is part of the show in Tony's mind, that's a blood relative. There's a song playing in the car. Christopher is driving Tony, so we know that he's Tony's right hand man at this point. He's driving a very expensive Lexus, and the song that's playing is "The Other Side of This Life" by Jefferson Airplane. If you look at the lyrics to that song, it kind of speaks to their relationship and again intentionality it's all about intentionality for me that song was originally a fred neal song and it was released in 1969 and one of the things that david chase said is that he doesn't like using score he likes using songs because it just places you it puts the listener in a space or the viewer in a space where things are a little bit more real 
and relatable. And um, again, so far he's three for three. A lot of times his music comes straight from someone listening to the radio or a yeah, radio yeah, Tony company. listening yeah. in, in his car. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a great one in season four that I just saw actually that we'll we'll talk about when we get to season four. Um, where, what are they? Where are they going? What's going on here? There's a they see something or Christopher sees something and what's what's happening? Yeah, I, I don't think they they had a destination. Maybe they were just headed to the um, the sandwich shop, but they come across or they see McAfee. Mahaffey. He's actually a very, uh, not famous, but he's actually, he's acted in everything. Look him up real quick. IMDB. I have the link in my notes here, but I just want to get his name. He's been in everything and he's still working like to this day. Like he's in, he's in like sitcoms and. I think I've seen him in The Office before. He's in everything. Yeah, he's, he's like Jim's brother in yeah. The Office. Davey Scott and Scottino? No. No, that's. No. Uh, we'll find it. We'll find it. It's not Davey a Scottino's Terminator. The uh, <laughs> so the, so Tony's about to describe something and Melfi cuts him off. She basically says, "Look, there's some ethical ground rules here we have to get into." Um, this whole idea of doctor-patient confidentiality. Do you want to give a one-on-one on that? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll just go through it real quick. Okay. I mean, so initially in your first session with any client, what you want to do is you want to set boundaries. And uh, Melfi actually does this a couple of times throughout the series rather than just the first, Um, you know, where she lays down her basic ground rules and, you know, she talks about how he can't, she can't know if he is in immediate danger or if he's about to hurt somebody. You know, later on in the series, she also mentions she can't accept gifts and she kind of refuses the coffee. So she's kind of laying down the boundaries a little bit longer um, than you normally would. You know, she, you're supposed to do that in the first the first meeting, but she's laying them out kind of as she goes, probably because she's a little bit frightened of him. That's That was my take. You know, she, you can totally tell from her body language. Yeah, she doesn't yeah. want to piss him off. Yeah, she wasn't 100% comfortable in the beginning. Obviously, later on, she, she feels free to speak her mind. Well, she also infers she says uh your neighbor is dr kuzumano and do you see what that alludes to i forget yeah. the, I, well, basically basically it, but... i know about you yeah because your doctor is also your neighbor mm-hmm. so there's a case called Terrasaw framework yeah. for what the rules are yeah. falls under yeah. so basically tony can't say anything that either expresses overtly or inherently that he's going to perpetrate a crime that he's going to hurt somebody or that he did hurt somebody yeah. or that he would... yeah or that he's in immediate danger because she basically has to either stop a violent crime one way or the other whether it's against him or he's going to perpetrated against somebody else. I like okay. how she goes, technically. technically. Yeah, yeah. Right. Because she's trying to save herself. She's in a closed room with him, and this is 1999, so there's no Nest cameras everywhere. It's just her and him. Yeah. Well, and you know, you know, I, I, I don't know if I see it that way. I also think she's just trying to establish a rapport, and she doesn't want to turn him off. She wants him to, to, be, to be comfortable. And, I mean, I think uh, as we, we get on the show, we kind of see that she's really fascinated by him. She can't stop thinking about him, whether she's intimidated, scared, you know, maybe in love in in some some deep way. Um, you know, but she's obviously really interested in Tony. She he occupies a lot of time in her mind, and I think that she just generally is interested in this type of a patient. He's somebody that she's probably never dealt with before, and she wants to keep diving deep into that psyche of his. Don't you find it interesting how many times they mention Dr. Kuzumano in this episode, but how infrequently we see him? We don't see him in the pilot, um, and we see him throughout the show just to 
handful of times, but he's like a big deal. There's an episode named after him or uh, of his wife. I dream of <laughs> I dream of Jeannie Cusimano. Well, there's an implied relationship of obviously being the neighbor, yeah. Uh, yeah. and even his reference to him, the coos. Yeah, you know, he, that there's a different relationship yeah. that he has, and but yeah, he's he's instrumental in making sure that Tony gets the proper care to figure out what's causing these panic attacks. Yeah. So Tony has coffee with Mahaffey. I don't know what happened with this fellow. I'm 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 just saying. Nothing. We had coffee. But basically he's collecting on a gambling yeah. debt. Yeah. Um one thing that I noticed in this scene, again, people have analyzed it to death. One thing that I noticed is that Mahaffey kicks Christopher or knocks Christopher over. Hits him in the balls. Hits yeah. him in the balls. Yeah. Knocks him down, which to me portends the future. Basically, the show is, there's many sequences and series where Tony is bailing out Christopher or cleaning up Christopher's mess. Christopher should have been able to handle that guy and it, it would not have necessitated the need for Tony to have to drive, chase him down, do the whole thing he did. Did you guys catch that? Did you did you see that? Do you see it now that I'm? I, I've mentioning always been it? a little surprised that uh, maybe more so the the balls that McCaffrey had, knowing who he just did yeah. that to. Right. Uh, the fact that he even maligned him. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah. said yeah. bad things about Tony. Yeah. That's what pissed him off to begin with. But like you say, I mean, the scene's pretty self-explanatory, and uh, it's your first taste of the violence that will precede this series. You caught something with the rings. Talk to me about that because mm. I still don't get it. I still don't understand. I want to give a shout out to the Soprano show, the podcast that I believe mentioned it uh, through their research or, and we can examine it more to try to validate this story. But apparently if you catch, uh, there's two instances where Gandolfini either removes his ring or turns it around. And it was said that this was uh, an improvisation of him uh, as to sort of protect himself. He's about to get his hands dirty. He's about to punch the guy and wanted to remove any markings that might be hmm. left on him that would, you know, connect Tony to said crime. Fascinating. Um, the other thing we talked about, too, when we talk about would a show like this be the same now as it was then? The brazen violence out in public in a industrial park, would it look like? Uh, nowadays, I don't think would have either happened or they wouldn't have gotten away with this. Or everybody would have been videoing everybody it. Everybody would have been. Yeah. Yeah. been yeah. World yeah. star. So it's... That dates the show, that dates the show a little does. bit. Yeah. Um, and, and I think a modern day Tony Soprano would have either had someone else do that for him or it just would have never happened. Or it makes it just sort of comedic. Yeah. It, it yeah. takes the realism well, out. The show is a comedy. Yeah, it Many is. argue that it's a it's a comedy and the wheels fall off at the very end and that's part of what a tragic, that's a tragic comedy, the definition of a tragic comedy. Um, okay, so we go from there. Now we're introduced to another spot that we're going to see in the show on a regular basis, uh, Satrials, the pork shop. It's not Satrials in the pilot because in the pilot they didn't know what the hell they were doing, yeah. but we're just going to call it Satrials because yeah. that's what it is. This is where we're introduced to the wide angle shots. We're introduced to the angles. We're introduced to the use of lighting, depth of field, just all of the things that were never in TV before, but now David Chase is basically saying, I am an auteur, HBO has given me this canvas, and I'm going to show the people something they've never seen before. If you freeze frame the shots of Satrials, there's some of their paintings. They're beautiful. We see his team. We see his crew. I think we got Polly, who doesn't have, for as big of a role as he plays in the show, in the pilot, he's pretty much mute. He's only got a handful of scenes, right? Mm -hmm. As yeah. is Silvio, too. Yeah. As is Silvio. Yeah. Silvio has a little more talking parts, but Polly is pretty much just a body. That's true. So 
the song that you hear when it cuts to Satrials, there's an interesting little backstory to it. It's by a guy named Link Ray and his Ray Men. The song's called Rumble. Apparently there's some controversy. This guy is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and any musician worth their salt thinks he should be. He's known for inventing what's called the power chord and Pete Townsend of The Who, Mm -hmm. he's quoted as saying that Link Ray is, quote, the king. And if it hadn't been for Link Ray and Rumble, he would have never picked up a guitar. So shout out to Link Ray and David Chase for using that song at this really important establishing scene. Um, What's the meeting about at Satrials? Uh, It has to do with the garbage business. Um... Triborough Tower contract. Basically what's happening is someone's trying to eat into Tony's route. Someone's going to be taking some money out of Tony's pockets. And what we establish here is that somebody needs to do something about Mm -hmm. it. Christopher says, Fucking garbage business. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's all changing. Let me see what I can do. Are you sure? You owe me your stomach ache? Good. I'm going to take care of it. So we know that there's a little bit of plot and we're going to see this throughout the show, right? Someone's encroaching on Tony's business and Tony needs someone to take care of it. And in this instance, it's Christopher. And I I love how he, the way that he kind of instructs Christopher to take care of it. And, you know, you see this throughout the show, the way that they, you know, off people, he says to Christopher, you know, how how will they know if they got the message? You know, it's all about sending a message. You know, they do that throughout the show. How, How will he know he's gotten? Well, they don't know. Well, then what's the point? Well, he does know, but he doesn't know. Right. He's there, but he's not. Well, he's not even at the table, too. He's like kind of off the side. Curiously at the side because he's not a captain. Right. And he's not even made yet. The pecking order. uh, That I've, I could fix this. Yeah. He's trying to prove himself, mm-hmm. right? Right. Which is a theme throughout. Mm-hmm. Theme till the very end, yep. actually. Um, so Silvio comes into the scene, and he talks about this friend, um, who, again, is a really good lens for the show, for viewers that have seen it, Artie Bucco. Artie Bucco is not part of the crew. Artie Bucco is his own guy. He's a, he runs a restaurant, but he's Tony's childhood friend. So for the viewer, for me, he's always been this voice of reason from the standpoint of, like, he's not part of this construct yeah. um him and carmella and well Carmela's kind of implicit you know implicitly yeah. involved but there are these moral compasses in the show and Artie buco is one of the moral compasses apparently tony's uncle jr who we haven't met yet wants to whack pussy malanga and tony's finding out about it for the first time that it's going to happen at Artie buco's restaurant my question to you guys who's pussy malanga do we are we supposed to know at this point do we care at this point yeah, I don't I don't know if they ever really get into it. I mean, they they mention him later on in the series, but there's not really any insight into who he is or really why he needs to go. I think he's just there as a device, you know, a, a story device. A story device. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that these guys even when Tony finds out that it's not his pussy, but it's this other pussy that yeah. wants to be killed, he seems Unconcerned, but and, but and he's concerned about general... as he's concerned about it being at Artie's place. Exactly, yeah. which we later find out that Junior says, "I'm comfortable here." Mm-hmm. Why would you want to disrespect a place that you're comfortable at? No, he yeah. says he's he says Pussy Malanga goes there. He's comfortable there. Oh, it's a good yeah. place to do the and, because and he's not guarded. Got it. Or... It wasn't a Junior thing. Like I'm comfortable. Yeah. Okay, yeah, and Let's it's see. it's one of the many kind of uh, callbacks to The Godfather, where you know they're allowing Michael to go with uh, Salazzo, I believe to you know his restaurant so he's comfortable you know they're not thinking that michael has anything taped behind uh the bathroom spoiler alert you know so i i feel like it's another one of many callbacks to the the oh for sure yeah the pilot is filled filled with them yeah um so 
one interesting thing is once you find out that Tony doesn't like what's going on, him and Chrissy go to see a junior. You meet Junior for the first time, he's in the restaurant, and uh, there's a line that I like. You know what it means for Arthur, one of these old mugs gets wet in here? Yeah, doing his business. You better sit down with your uncle. Again, these are all cultural reference points and, and this colloquialisms that you get. And gets wet means basically gets whacked. It has to do with blood. I didn't know that. When I hear that, I think, again, it's a basketball reference. When someone's shot is on fire, <laughs> yeah. their shot is wet. But it just shows you context, yeah. right? It's yeah. interesting. It's yeah. like, I didn't catch that all these times. But when you pay attention for an analytical podcast, you notice these Yeah, that's things. why they, uh, they call it wet work. Ah, yeah, I see. Interesting. Yeah, they he wants to protect the, his friend's business, yeah. The, the prestige of the restaurant, and if somebody does get whacked there, uh, the the proverbial Yelp reviews might follow. Yeah, and, this is a dangerous place exactly. to be. There's kind of only two things that Tony really has sentimental value for in the show, and it's animals and Artie. Yeah. That's so true. Yeah. He hugs Artie at the yeah. end, and yeah. he, he hugs him like a little baby. Yeah, like I'm always going to take care of you. And That's his actually, and he does. Solution yeah. ultimately is to still protect Artie, <laughs> you know, through insurance money. Yeah, it's uh, it's never it's always focused on. Which I mean, we don't need Artie. to focus on it, but that's probably like the dumbest way to help your friend by blowing up his restaurant. I mean, yeah. You know, he's about messages, like you said, yeah. uh, and that's definitely a message that he's sending Junior. Yeah, he would send absolutely. it. He would send. He would. He would send a message to the detriment of his friend, but he'll always make restitution to his friend mm-hmm. somehow, some way. And that's just that's just Tony. Yeah. That's just T. So we got we got Junior out of the way. We know who Junior is now. In true pilot fashion, we're just kind of knocking down mm-hmm. all the dominoes here. We meet the matriarch. One of the most important actresses, I think, um, in the show, if not in, in just acting in, yep. in the acting community, Nancy Marchand, Livia Soprano. Um, I did a little rabbit hole deep dive on her. She graduated from Carnegie Mellon in 1959, which I found fascinating to have graduated from a prestigious technical college in that era. And she won the Golden Globe and SAG for Best Supporting Actress for the show. Her performance didn't go unnoticed. Um, and her career spanned theater, TV, and film. So she's, she was killing it. And I think you know this, John, David Chase had plans to, she was going to die in the pilot. Yeah. Uh, am I right? Yeah. She was so good. Once the show got picked up, they decided to make her a thing. So it's a testament to how great of an actress she was. Well, and it was said too, when he was pre-Sopranos and sort of in this lull of trying to figure out what his big break was going to be, he'd said that his wife said he should write about his own mother. And there's many testimonies of people uh, saying how, Nancy's portrayal of Livia was spot on to David Chase's mother. Yeah. So there's, I, I think he had an initial adoration or connection with that character because it, it was his own mom. You know, um, one of the things that we're going to do, so I'm going to go back for a second. David Chase mentioned when he found out that the show was going to be made, he had very little time to come up with 12 hours of content. And he said that he literally fleshed out the show as it happened, which is what we're going to do with this podcast. We're going to flesh it out as it happens in the honor of trying to do a tribute to him. When Tony walks up to the door, they focus on the number 55. And then one of the things we didn't mention at the beginning of the podcast, like I said, we're figuring this out as we go a little bit. When we first met, we talked about how excited we were for the prequel that David Chase announced a few months ago. Correct me on the title if I'm wrong, but it's the Saints of Newark. Many Saints of Newark. Yeah. Many Saints of Newark. I believe it's a working title. Working title. So yeah, they're not, they're not set on anything yet. Is 55 significant? That's my question. 
You think it may have been an Easter egg that David put for the is, potential is, of... Well, does, is the movie taking place in the 50s or is it taking place in the 60s? I believe it's the 60s. Okay. Because I, I think... I, I, know, wanted, I, I wanted some <laughs> connection. I saw the I was hoping Alex you'd... Jones and him looking for the, the 55 and you add the two together, it equals James Gandolfini's birthday. I like where you're going there. It's it's a noticeable address. So the only reason I'm bringing it up is because I, we, we analyzed the episode frame by frame yeah. and that was... They showed the number for more than three seconds. So to me, and in future episodes, we're going to see, you know, they're showing feet, they're showing shoes, where Polly's upset about something. And they, so like everything is intentional is the point I'm trying to make. If we can find out or if a listener hears this and wants to tell us what 55 means, if there is an opinion or a theory or a thesis, I'd love to hear it. What do we want to say about Nancy Marchand? We're going to talk about her as we go. But basically, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I have... I can relate in terms of like the back and forth with my mother, not necessarily verbatim, but just sort of the push and pull and the, you know, you don't come around here no more. You don't call, you don't write. Oh my God. Um, I think that every, every man in America that has that relationship, if you haven't already at this point been rooting for Tony, you now have a point of origin where Tony and you and Tony, no matter how different your life might be, I always find myself aligned with him. Absolutely. As a trying as to a, please his mother. As a Persian Jew, um, my my mom can, you know, love her to death, but she can be a, a little demanding. And she's only demanding of time. You know? Why 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 aren't you coming over? I come over. Why don't you come over more? I only see you once a week. I'm like, Mom, I'm here. I'm he- why, why am I not a Shabbat? Oh my God. It's Shabbat you dinner. Can- Shabbat dinner. So you know, Artie what- Boko calls his mom every night. Oh my yeah. God, I know. So that that's the, in a nutshell, that's kind of the relationship that we have here. We're seeing this tension, push and pull. She asks him if he wants to eat eggplant. He says, I haven't eaten. She's already making the eggplant before he has a chance <laughs> to say. That's classic. And again, my wife will attest to this too. Like I, I can watch the scenes with, with James Gandolfini and, and Nancy Marchand over and over again because it's so relevant. It's so timeless. Whether you have a mother from the 50s, the 60s, mm-hmm. the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, that dynamic between mother and son is, uh, he captured it in a, in a, it was lightning in a bottle. Absolutely, yeah. And I think it's exacerbated with the uh, kind of immigrant culture, you know? There's, I, I don't know if, I, I believe Livy is, what, second generation as well? You know, she didn't She didn't come straight from Italy. They didn't come from no. the boat, yeah. Yeah, but, but still, you know, there's still that deep family tie. It's super important. You know, the Sunday dinners that they always had are always kind of emphasized a little bit. Thematic so I, throughout the show. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think that that's a big component too, you know, it's it's, you know, although she's not necessarily an immigrant, there, there's still that immigrant culture. Tony mentions uh, the artist. He, he brings her a CD player, uh, again, dating the show, uh, but still uh, so cool. He mentions her by name. And so we're going to geek, at least to the extent that I'm able, I'm going to geek out on the songs because I think it's very intentional. He calls her out by name. Her name's Connie Francis. I actually didn't know anything about her. So I took a minute and she was a big deal. She's actually Italian. She still challenges Madonna which I thought was fascinating, is the biggest selling female recording artist of all time per Spotify. Uh, she's bigger, was bigger than Madonna in her day. And on a volume level, she's right up there. And her name, she was born Conchetta Rosemary Franconero. So David Chase, again, like keeping true to the Italian roots. And again, when he's, the fact that he called her out by name is a reason why I'm just kind of giving you a little mini bio on her. So another thing we mentioned about the prequel, uh, 
it's where the first time Tony, I, I don't know if Tony mentions, brings it up or if Livia brings it up, but his dad comes up into the conversation. She breaks down and she calls him a saint. She used the word, uses the word again with Junior in the car towards the end. Do you think this is where the name for the prequel came from? Like the this use of a saint? I think it has, I think to. So, it has yeah. to be, right? I think so. It's a nod to that? So. Yeah. And when we heard as massive fans that the prequel was coming, that was our immediate go-to yeah. was creating memes your father off of saints. referencing yeah. the saints. Your father was a saint. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think we even had those, you know, baseball cards. Uh, baseball cards. <laughs> the like, you the junior wanted those, to sell. Did your Did your audience know about the prequel as well? Yeah. So did it give you like? Well, a, so did you get like? We had a, done the Johnny one. Yeah, we did baseball card of Johnny. Yeah. And then when we heard of oh, the many saints, then I created the junior yeah. version and trans. Have you guys debated who you think should play Johnny Soprano? Oh. Or Junior? Have you guys had that? Have no, we haven't. We we we, 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 we joke we around a little bit on our on our page and get our our audience a little bit riled up, making stuff up and just teasing a little we bit. People believe that Robert Iller <laughs> was going to be Tony, Tony Soprano, Soprano and that costume, and Johnny Depp was going to be Rocco De Mayo. <laughs> well, you know, you know, Ray Liotta wanted was Ray Liotta was offered the role of Tony Soprano, yeah, right? right? Yeah, and he turned it down, or he didn't want to be a part of the show because he said, "I have a pretty healthy ego." Yeah, you think Ray Liotta could play? I, I feel like I feel like it's a legit go. Like he could totally go there if they were already thinking of him in the first place. It's it's strange for me, and I think about that a lot. And in, in we're also admins for a couple of Facebook groups that are just diehard fans, and this question comes up a lot. And I think it even goes back to like, could you imagine the intro song being different? And it, it, to me, it's impossible because it would take the show in a different direction. And then it's strange to me because then you've got that Goodfellas connection where, yeah, he would be. Talking to his wife from Goodfellas. Oh yeah, yeah, I've I've kind of romanticized Goodfellas a little bit too much to even fathom Ray Liotta being being in the Many Saints of Newark. Um, but I I mean, do I think he could play it well? Yeah, and I think he does bear a little bit of resemblance to uh, to Johnny Boy a little bit. Let's um, get him on the show if you're listening, Ray. <laughs> For sure, we'd love and, to know. Uh, yeah, that, add that to that been list. Regretting okay, and shout show. out to uh, to the Facebook page that that we're a part of. Time What's in, that called? Time, time Immemorial Sopranos. Time Immemorial. Okay, so okay, so we've got Livia. Livia has been established, and now we can move on. Tony goes in there to ask her to talk to Junior about telling him you know he'll listen yeah. to you like tell him to back off but we're gonna later find out that junior and livia might have a thing or two yep. planned which is the whole crux of the first season of the show right but let's kind of stay chronological just for the sake of this is the pilot and we might as well make our pilot chronological future episodes will jump around and kind of be all over the place but just for structure we are led to tony's first panic attack he's barbecuing i guess this is aj's birthday party right a beautiful opera is playing I think I told I told you this, John, when we first met. One of the things I love is the iconic upward angle shots that Tony fills the frame with. Looking at him from the grill, basically, the eye, the camera is kind of like in the barbecue, and you see Tony. And um, I'm, I'm going to butcher the the name of the song, but it's from the opera La Rondine, which means the swallow, which I tried to decode and decrypt, but I couldn't. I guess I might have had something to do that maybe he had a shortness of breath, and that's why he fell. Mm. And it's uh, composed by the Italian composer Puccini. This opera actually plays in another episode that you'll see later on, Irregular Around the Margins, which is one of my favorite episodes in the show. So, again, I'm calling out... Are they out, referencing uh, the swallow as a bird? Possibly. Hmm. Did, you, did you find that somewhere? Well, I just... This is new information to me with the song, and you said it translates to swallow. Yeah. And I, I think they even mentioned that when they're discussing... What caused it? Was it a bird? Was it a... Yeah, when, when he's breaking it down with Melfi. Mm. I like that. I like that. Mm. 
Okay, so birthday rain check. T falls. He's got to get the MRI. He's having strife with his wife. She calls out, you know, his various transgressions. We all know that. I don't know. This for you was uh, a point of departure. I think where we differed um, in terms of like Tony being a family man versus not being a family man. And I think we'll explore that. I yeah. think I think we're two against one here. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that that, uh, <laughs> that that to me, I'm a dad. I don't necessarily take life coaching lessons from Tony Soprano, but uh, I, I, do sure th- hope I do think he's a man that loves his kids and would take a bullet for them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think that you can separate, you know, Tony's morality and compartmentalize the way he's a father and what he does in his life. You know, you you have to reconcile them some way. There, he's he is one person. But with that with that being said, I do think that he he does, you know separate his family from his work family and he does treat his kids you know he takes his daughter on a state trip to all the colleges in one new york one of the best episodes ever yeah yeah, yeah. he his favorite he, he makes sure that you know aj does his work he you know he stays on top of him when when aj's with him and, and when he's going into the MRI machine, he tells Carmelo, we had some good times, you yeah. know? So he's immediately reflective in a moment, like when you, when life flashes before your eyes, he's thinking about her and he's thinking about his family. Mm-hmm. Again, it, we're, we can like mince this apart, but to me, when I watch it, I think, you know, at the end of the day, all this stuff that he's doing, the good, the bad, the indifferent, he, he's doing it for his family, you know? Yeah. Uh, um, to, to some extent. Yeah. I mean, he's, look, he's a, he's a selfish guy and yeah. I think we can all agree on at least that he's not. But a, would he take a bullet for AJ? Yeah, I think and so. And would he take a bullet from Meadow? I think I think so. I think so. And, 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 well, you know what he'd give well, one. I think that's a different <laughs> question. And, and kind of where our conversation started about yeah. this whole thing is I don't think there's any question that he, you know, he loves his children. But was he a, a good father? That's the yeah. strange line yeah. that I'm going to say. So how, how, how was he not a good father? Well, I mean, we'll go down that, that path as we proceed, but... Um, but I think it's a good thing to mention at the beginning so that we can always be cognizant of it going forward. Yeah. We can, well, we can, you, you talk about maybe like a character arc for that episode and it's, it's getting out of chronological order, but when he takes Meadow to the church yeah. and, and you get to see a softer side or, or a different way that he parents for her in particular, even different from the way that Carmela is a parent to Meadow. Yeah. So he, he said, does have these redeeming qualities for that sure. Get yeah. And of. and and you always get it. You always get it. Just when you're at the point of like hating him, or when you're point of being like, oh my god, this is too far. They throw a softball at yeah. you, and they humanize. Yeah. They immediately humanize him. Mm-hmm. And his eyes are very humanizing too. Like just the way he looks into the camera when he's talking to somebody, um, he has a way to pull you back in. Yeah. yeah this is of. the precursor for what inspired or what made someone like a Walter White character possible. Hundred percent. Because, yeah. because yeah. he was doing bad things, but ultimately, as a fan of that show knows, he was doing it. For his family. For his family. And, yeah. and you know, as he later admits, for himself. For himself. For world domination. So what I think there's it? an interesting you... juxtaposition where, where Tony's kind of the same way. You know, Tony is really selfish and, you know, an egomaniac and also a fragile ego. Yeah. And he's also this person who cares about his family above all else and he'll do anything to protect it. Um, you know, he takes AJ fishing. He you know, shows AJ like how his, you know, older family built the old town that they used to live in. You know, he ta- he keeps he talks it, about that a lot. He yeah. mentions it with Meadow yeah. in the church. Your great grandfather and his brother Frank. They built this place. They grew up. Stone and marble workers. They came over here from Italy and they built this place. Yeah, right. Two guys. No, they were two guys and a crew of, you know, laborers. They didn't design it. 
they knew how to build it. Go out now and find me two guys that can put decent gratter on your bathtub. Again, it goes back to the essence of like who Tony is. Yeah. Um, let's rewind real quick. I want to just, mm. there's a really big scene where Christopher has to handle that problem, right? The triborough problem. Again, very cinematic, very throwback, very good fellas, uh, very godfathery. Um, I thought the song was a perfect choice. I'm a man by Bo Diddley. He's, 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 he's making his way yeah. uh, into the world. He's going to be a made guy after this, mm-hmm. or so he thinks. Yeah. Okay, yeah. and that's why we see at the end where he's really disappointed that he, you know why, why I just did this for you. So who's this guy? This is a Czechoslovakian. His name's Emil. His name's yeah. Emil. But Christopher keeps on calling him Emil, <laughs> yeah. which in 1999 is pretty you know pretty yeah. progressive, right? Yeah. We're talking about email in 1999. Yeah. Most people didn't have email, so. Look, there's this ongoing rift between cultures, so the Czechs and the Russians and the Italians. There's this is going to be an ongoing theme, and you're you're kind of like safe. nobody's safe. You know, uh, Christopher handles it, but Tony doesn't like the way that Christopher handles it because Tony doesn't. Tony, as we'll know, doesn't like to be messy. Yeah. He wants to keep things. He wants to keep people out of the can because they're, he's afraid they're going to rat on him or they're going to they're going to break the code, the omerta. Mm-hmm. And this is just another example of Christopher jeopardizing whatever they've built. And when people are in the can, they can't be earners. They can't be earners. Very good point. So that scene, they, there's an artistic part where when he's when he's putting the bullets into Emil's head, uh, you see three pictures. Um, I caught Capone. I caught Dean Martin. I didn't catch the third one. Do you guys know who the third one is? No. No, I don't think I caught that. Okay. It's somebody, it has to be someone of significance. And again, everything's intentional. Nothing is accidental. And it just goes to show you that there's David Chase in his mind when he was cutting this thing together. He was trying to cut together a movie. He was trying to make, he was trying to give the, the viewer a dance. You know, there's this scene happening and we're going to, we're going to try to cultural context it with all these various faces. And it's always uh, among members of this family. They talk it about it as losing one, one's virginity. It's a, uh, Popping your cherry yeah. is your, yeah. your first kill. And uh, they all have significant stories that you get to hear as we proceed on, on that experience. And it's it's cool to see uh, a young character like Christopher Montesanti do that within the first episode. You get a glimpse into what it would be like if you were that beginning player in the game, you know, advancing into the, the upper levels. Yeah, going back to, you know, is this the end is this the end of that kind of a lifestyle and that the dominance of the mafia, especially in that region? You know, Christopher's an really interesting character because if Tony feels like he's at the cusp and he's at the end, then where does Christopher fall, you know, in that timeline? You know, is, well, he's already trying to get out because yeah. he's, he sees the writing on the wall. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I feel like I will we'll notice that as another as a theme throughout the series, too. Like Christopher's always got it always seems to me in, in, in the pilot. It's obvious he's kind of has one foot out the door. And and Tony's in this situation where he's trying to groom the heir to mm-hmm. his throne because everybody's always thinking about like succession, right? Succession planning. Yeah. And Tony's succession planning is pretty fucked at this point. He doesn't know what he's going to do. And that's kind of why where this bitterness towards AJ comes in, because he's looking at this 13 year old kid with like a really bad haircut and he's going like look there's no way there's no way this guy can run north jersey you know the millennials yeah. taking yeah. over the, uh, yeah. the mafia email and, 
internet and all this stuff. Okay, so the ducks come back into the picture because he's back in Melfi's office and she actually gets him to admit that the ducks represent something, which we talked about, about family. It makes him, it makes him emotional to the point where when she pushes, he tries to hit on her. Right, he talks about like what part of the boot are you from, and they and they're actually where the two villages that they are Caserta and Avellino, I think they're separated by a little park, so they're mm-hmm. actually very close. And he says that my mother would love it if yeah. the two of us got together. It's because they were literally like, uh, you know, it was like Beverly Hills and uh, you know uh, La Brea. They were they but were close. A specific diversion, and maybe you want to touch on that. I mean, it's the scene where she's persistently asking him, "Are you depressed?" Yeah, and his defense mechanism is to turn it a completely different direction and you can see that like you say in the non-verbals of yeah. him processing that and it's classic diversion. what do you make of the yeah. fact that he hears it and then walks out i i think clinically that, like what's going on there? well i mean it's tough i i think that he just doesn't he's in denial he's in denial about where he is mentally and his mental health you know he's he doesn't want to believe that he is sick in the head because you know obviously in this day and age there's more acceptance and we're not we're not fully there yet but i think you know we've come a long way in the past you know 15 20 years especially from you know when soprano started and you know in that time it wasn't as widely accepted and you can even imagine within that subculture how off-putting it was i mean that's the whole theme of the entire first season is is how unacceptable it is for him to even be in therapy so for him to accept that he has a mental illness which is so common you know now we know it's so common and everybody you know either knows somebody who's been clinically depressed or is has been themselves in some way or another or at least felt that or felt the need to go to a therapist and talk to somebody you know it's the 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 stigmata is a little bit removed but at uh at that time you know it, it wasn't and you know, within Tony subculture, like he he couldn't let his guard down. He also had that big ego. So just admitting that, you know, he was weak, he just can't accept that. I think the, um, you know, the fact that it physically affected him, that that's where it really changes. You know, that's where he can't ignore it. He has to do something about it. He needs to to intervene clinically. To, to kind of treat himself. So he bails out. Did you guys catch this nuance where Melfi, as soon as he, he walks out the door, she puts her hands behind her head and she's making the same exact gesture of the statue? Did you catch that? Mm. I never, I remember that. Go back and, wow. go back and, go back and watch it and it's exactly the way the statue's standing. Again, wow. you guys were talking about breadcrumbs or what was the word you used at David Chase's uh, Easter eggs? Easter eggs, yeah. yeah that yeah. to me was a big Easter egg and I had never caught that until and, and, preparing for this. And to your point, maybe that's kind of giving birth to him and releasing to the world. She's, in essence, giving birth release, to their relationship? Or? No, releasing him to the He's walking out and she puts her hands up like that She's, uh, letting him go she's letting him go and experience the world. Interesting. They made or, a breakthrough and or, it's time or, to or go she, out. <laughs> or she's made a therapeutic breakthrough where she knows that now she's actually gotten to the core of what his feelings are. That wasn't the last time they're going to talk, though, so she thinks it's over. I, I, I didn't see it that way. I didn't see it as her thinking that he wasn't going to come back. To me, I thought that she knew, like, this is this is the start. Progress. This is progress. This is, this progress. is how we start. This is... She, you know, she's a she's a psychiatrist, and but remember in yeah. the, in that episode, there's one little mini scene where she like gets her jacket on, mm-hmm. she like does herself up a little bit actually, kind of like like 
primping herself. Yeah. She opens the door and says, Mr. Soprano, and he's not there. So he missed an appointment. Mm. Do you remember that? Mm, right. And then he goes back in and then it comes back. And so you get the, as a viewer, you think like he's done because she pushed a button and he doesn't want to be vulnerable to her yeah. again. So in her mind, she's gone. But what happens is he does come back in the way he comes back. She kind of has this like overpowering. She's actually not sitting cross-legged and reclined. She's sitting a little forward, kind of like, so you're back. You know, she's like, she knows now she's in yeah. a position of power. That's when she gives him sort of the reassurance that uh, you haven't lost a battle or this isn't. Well, that's when they start talking. That's when she finally opens it. This, and again, this yeah. comes back to the mother. All therapy begins and ends with the mother. When he comes back, it's about his mom. Yeah. And he talks about his mom, and that's when the Prozac starts. The D word gets thrown around. He acquiesces. He says, yes, I'm depressed. And then he gets medication. She starts pulling out her prescription pad. He makes these comments about how, you know, here we go, yeah. here we go. But he accepts it. And so now she's kind of in the zone that you were talking about where she goes like, okay, now we're getting to the yeah. heart of what this is at. And again, for me, when I heard that, where he basically starts going, the ducks, but what do the ducks represent? The ducks represent family and a strong woman and the mother, this matriarch. Mm -hmm. And then she basically just breaks him down. In the course of a pilot, you go from the strong silent type to a guy who's crying on his therapist's yeah. couch, yeah. which is something that again, humanizes him at a very core level. I want to rewind real quick to the one scene where Big Pussy is helping Christopher di dispose of email, mm -hmm. the body. And they decide against leaving him in the dumpster. And they say, we need to chop him up in Staten Island so that the, the Czechs, the Czechoslovakians, he says, we need to make it seem like they that he's missing, that yeah. he's a, a potential yeah. to come back. But Christopher, under his breath, when they're throwing him back in the trunk, says, Pussy, you know, if he collapsing at the birthday, what would you do if he was like disabled? Why would you even ask that? Another example of Christopher pondering life post-Tony, pondering life one foot out of the door. Another little breadcrumb to me that made me suspicious of Christopher from day one mm -hmm. in the pilot. Like, what? Like, Christopher's the guy. Like, why is he... I, you know, I don't know if I Was thought... that too subtle of a catch? No, no, no. I, I, I look at that as more of... A commonality between the two of them where you know they talk about the human condition um and that's something that christopher understands as we later find out you know really well and gets real acquainted with himself and obviously tony is in the constant you know mental struggle himself and i think that that's something that they share they hate admitting it to each other in different ways and i think christopher tries to relate a little bit more to tony there um, as the show goes on, but I, I, I look at I look at a scene like that. Christopher is just thinking about Tony, like, you know, what what if this guy is not here? Like, I care about him. He's basically my father in in some ways. You know, we call him cousin, nephew. So you're uncle. giving him the benefit of the doubt. I I am. I mean, I haven't. I'm suspicious. Yeah, I I haven't seen anything. You know, Christopher even talks about in 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 the first season. Not to keep jumping ahead, but he talks about. Um, you know, what if the reason all of this shit's so fucked up is because nobody's, you know, listening to management? Yeah. And he really does respect the... There's a couple of characters that I think really respect, um, you know, LCN, La Cosa Nostra, and they really do put a value on it and they stick to it. And, you know, as we see later on in the show, Christopher makes decisions that, you know, sep that are separate from his personal life versus the, you know, work family. And he, he, you know, time and time again, always comes back to siding with the work family. And I, I, I think that his, 
you know, he must be loyal to his capo. You know, I think that that's something that he, he takes to heart. I, I, yeah, I, I agree. It's a, it's interesting. Their relationship is one of the best, one of the main threads throughout this, throughout the series. Yeah. Um, let's cut to the Bing. So now we've, now we're introduced to the Bada Bing, which is uh, one of the many venues in the show that are on repeat and obviously is the inspiration behind the namesake, namesake of this podcast. There's a meeting that's happening there. Okay. We're introduced to uh, Tony's dad's close friend and confidant. Hesh. Hesh is a really useful device in this scene because he gives you this backstory about Junior and Johnny Soprano. I don't think they mention him by name. I don't think they mention Johnny by name here, but Tony's dad's name is Johnny, and Johnny's is Junior's younger brother. And we learn from Hesh that that he was a that Johnny was a riser and that he ran his own crew, and that Junior was always envious, and that Junior was always jealous, and that that jealousy has trickled on into his relationship with Tony. So in about 15 seconds, David Chase gives us all the backstory we need to know that, oh, there's a lot of tension in the family here. But what is happening is that, well, first of all, besides the fact that the lighting, and I think you pointed this out too, you love the spotlights that were on Christopher. Oh, it's so perfect though, beautiful. Uh, Colorful depth of field, which is a geeky camera term, and wide angles. It's basically a smorgasbord of camera work, which again, I had never seen, and most people at that point had never seen in TV at that point. It was cinema. It was Godfather-esque. Just, it was very revealing about the quality and the caliber of the show. Um, What's happening is, first of all, uh, I think it's funny that Hesh thinks that um, it's Big Pussy that's getting whacked. And again, they mention this, they mention Little Pussy and Big Pussy. pussy? Yeah. Um, But I... Again, it begs the question, who is Little Pussy? As someone who's watched the show, the three of us have watched it as many times as we have. I don't get that satisfaction necessarily, but again, I'm throwing it out there. If there's any backstory on Little Pussy, bring it to us because he's mentioned enough times to be significant. Um, Hesh comes up with the idea to get Artie to go on vacation so they can burn the place down because Tony's obviously miffed about having to have a this job go down. But the real thing that happens in this scene that's interesting is it shows you the power play between Hesh and Tony that kind of carries on throughout the seasons. Hesh is the old elder statesman. Hesh was Johnny's guy. And Hesh is also giveth and Hesh taketh away. So Hesh is owed money. And he calls out, he says, you know, here's the plan for you to solve this Artie Buco problem. But where's my... So Tony's owed a million but Hesh is owed 250 on that. So he calls him out on the 250 on the 100, and that's when Tony comes up with this scheme. Basically, what Tony says is, look, we're going to have Mahaffey set up an HMO company. We're going to have his HMO company pay out phony claims to fake clinics. So the idea is you're going to pay MRI claims to this fake clinic that I'm going to set up. And he was going to make Hesh a partner in that clinic. The idea being that that's how Hesh was going to get his money back. So either you're going to get your money back that way, or you pay Hesh the 250K that you owe him, or he uses the reference to wet again. It's going to rain (laughs) in North Jersey. Okay. That to me is one of my favorite parts of the show throughout the series there are these elaborate schemes. A lot of people think the mafia is dumb or it's just dumb money or it's just guys basically like with a bunch of fronts, but they're like legitimate scams that they run. And in the era since the show, uh, Medicare fraud is actually a $60 billion a year scam. It's real money. So again, I like the fact that it was relevant. I like the fact that it was on point and it shows you again, a window into Tony's brain. 
Tony covers his bases. It has nothing to do with him. No, nothing illegal is happening. They're going to set up these offshore things and false claims are going to be paid. And they're basically just going to be taking a percentage of something that's already happening. Mm-hmm. Um, which leads to one of the coolest scenes in the show where Hesh and Big, Big, Pussy, Pussy, Big Pussy walk Mahaffey onto a bridge. Yep. Technically, and he would have gotten wet if they <laughs> yeah. threw him over too. Technically, great yeah. point. Yep. But he watches an ice cream cone fall down this bridge surrounded by water no noise very godfather-esque scene where silence 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 once again silence once again and the ice cream truck drives away so it's just the three of them and he basically goes okay i'll do the scam so again implied threat implied threats silence ambiguity Mm -hmm. again just boom 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 rattling things off one at a time and again creating this sense of wow i actually have a couple things more on hesh just because I think that I look at Hesh and I think of him as like the mafia Melfi. He's he's who Tony goes to to talk about you know his his interpersonal. He's a fixer. Yeah. Well, no, because he Tony goes to talk to Melfi about like his family and fainting and stuff like that. But if Tony has even like you know mental health or insecurity, not maybe not insecurities, but you know he he goes to to Hesh to talk about his problems in the same light that he goes to Melfi only for more, you know, for the other family that he's a part of. You know, he talks about his wife. He doesn't talk about his, his work to Melfi. And if he does, it's severely coded. No, it's, it's very true in later, in later seasons, especially, um, you know, with the horse, uh, he counsels Tony on like what to do and how to act. And so, so Tony surrounds himself with these people throughout the show. You know, Hesh is a very significant part of the show. He disappears for a while and he comes back, but I think that was intentional. If you think about it, because in your life, you, in everybody's life, you have like a guy that you go to or a person that you go to and then they're just like gone but yeah. then there's a moment in time when you need that person and they're there yep that's hesh yeah and and we also later find out that hesh is somewhat somewhat inadequate to fill that the same type of role that that melfi does it, it show you know he's kind of there as a device to show his need for melfi as well oh for sure yeah, yeah. Okay, so there's a scene uh, towards the end of the episode where Tony is going to a restaurant and he's with um, his gumar, his side piece. Um, And Melfi is at this restaurant with a date. We don't know really too much about her relationship at this point, but uh, they're having a hard time getting the table. Tony walks in and it just kind of just shows you the pecking order and just sort of kind of gives you as a viewer like, yeah, this guy's the man. He walks in, he immediately gets seated. If you notice, the host in the scene where he's with his gumars wearing black and when he comes in later with his wife at the same restaurant he's wearing white again mm. this to me is representative of an easter egg good and evil yep. so i like this scene because it establishes three things in one bang packed punch and economy one is that tony is the man established yeah. two that Everybody knows who he is and is like yeah. even even people uh, like on the streets, like this random date of Dr. Melfi's is enamored by him. Like, do you know who that is? Like, this is like, you know, and then the third thing is, is that it comes back to this doctor patient confidentiality where Tony approaches her and she's quickly trying to play dumb. Yeah. Like she doesn't know who this guy is. When you're generally setting your boundaries, 
in the in your first you know client doctor relationship and you're trying to set all that up the relationship is really significant and establishing boundaries is really important and what you normally do is you tell somebody look when i see you out in public if you want to come say hello to me that's fine but i can never be the person to address you first so i think that that's that's kind of true to true to life there you know she's not the one going up to him she might see him and you know, try to turn away. But if he wants to go up and say hi, she's not going to, you know, ignore him or anything like that. Well, and we had talked about this. He's really brazen about disclosing. He thanks her for the interior decorating tips, which uh, even her date knows is sort of a code for something else. And um, in the same fashion, later on at that restaurant, he tells his wife, no one can know that I'm in therapy. You're the only person who knows. The only reason I'm telling you this is because you're my wife. And you're the only person on this planet that I'm completely and totally honest with. Oh, please. Hey, goddammit, I'm serious. The wrong person finds out about this and I get a steel jacket and answer the person right in the back of the head. Um, so you, you get a glimpse of Tony sort of breaking his own rules yeah. or, or not being afraid of the consequences simply because he, he wanted to sort of show off to Melfi. Yeah, I mean, and it, I, I think that that's what this show does is it really shows the contradictions. And, you know, everybody's complex. Not one person is just linear thought. You know, you have different thoughts on different subject matters and not everything is, is completely aligned and congruent with one another. You know, everybody has contradictions and it kind of humanizes him to say, you know, look, he has these rules that he sets up, but even he doesn't follow his own rules completely to a T. Um, one other thing that I, I find really interesting about that particular scene is it shows that this is now Tony's domain, you know, in, in the office, it's Melfi running the show. She's setting the boundaries. She's guiding him. She has the calm demeanor, but out in the real world, it's, it's Tony's show. He's, he owns North Jersey. She, she owns that office. He owns North Jersey. And, and, you know, she finds that out right then and there. And they were in, the restaurant was in the city in New York. So he's, he's well known in the city as yeah. well. Like they know that he's the, you yeah. know, he, he has no problem getting a table, which to me also is a Godfather throwback because that scene, uh, not Godfather, I'm sorry, a Goodfellas throwback where Ray Liotta's character is walking through the Copacabana yeah. Yeah. and he immediately gets a table right up front. Yep. That was a nod to that. That's and that they took from the Mars on Friday and then their wife's on Saturdays or is it the other way It's the same thing, whatever. They can never figure it out. (laughs) But the host knows, see, that's why he was wearing his different thing, which is so so telling. Yeah. You know, we we skipped over somebody. I just want to mention it, throw it out. Uh, we're introduced to Charmaine Bucco, great character throughout mm-hmm. the show. She basically objects to Artie getting the tickets to go on the Caribbean cruise and says she has a great line where she says, Arthur, please, grow up. Does the mind not rebel in any possible scenario under which dentist is sending the Don of New Jersey first class on a Norwegian steamship? Come on, Arthur. Somebody donated their kneecaps for those tickets. We're going to find out some more about her history and Tony's history later, but it's, uh, I want to make sure that we mention her. And then we go to the final scene, which is the barbecue, AJ's birthday, take two is what I call it. Mm. 
there's a fascinating thing here, again, a musical, nerdy out, deep dive. It's the Annie Lennox song, No More I Love Yous, which is one of uh, David Chase's favorite artists. He uses her a lot in the show. The song was produced by Jimmy Iovine, famous from the, the HBO se- the documentary yeah. that came out Air last School year. Records, Death He's Row. A big yeah. uh, music producer, Apple Music. He was, yeah. a, he was an executive there. He produced the original version, which was performed by a group called The Lover Speaks that nobody ever heard in Britain. But Annie Lennox loved the song so much. She did a version of it. She won the Grammy for this song and she beat out Mariah Carey, Vanessa Williams, and Bonnie Raitt, which is pretty significant for this one song that was played at uh, AJ's Barbecue Part 2. The main takeaway for this scene, though, you guys, is that uh, uh, Christopher's pissed. Uh, Tony notices that Chris is brooding in the corner, and basically he's he tells Tony that he's got other options on the table. Yeah, I think it's the classic um, up-and-coming employee that wants a promotion, uh, thinks that he may have uh, done some things that should merit that, and uh, sort of, he says he could sell his Hollywood story to, uh, a, producer. to a producer for millions. millions. Smart. Smart to say that to Tony, right? So Tony gets pissed. They hug it out. One of the things that goes back to Tony as a parent or as a family man is this whole thing where he actually acknowledges to Christopher that you're right. I didn't congratulate you for a job well done. I was never raised that way. I was never complimented as a child. Um, the, The car scene with Junior and with Livia classical psychology here. De- feel free to deconstruct this if you will, but Junior basically is not happy. Like, as we talked about, Junior wants to crack some heads. Yeah. And he keeps on using this word, our friends, mm-hmm. our, our mutual friends. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he keeps on use- giving Livia the yeah. side eye. Olivia's quiet. Livia, he basically says, like, look, if things don't change, something might have to be yep. done about Tony. Yep. Which, guys, help me out here. This is season one, yeah. in a nutshell. Yeah. It's inferred that she's much more involved in the family, or may have been back when Johnny was the head of the family. And, yeah, he, he sort of side-eyes and is looking for her blessing or permission to do things that are really going to unfold and, she, and change she runs, the scope. She runs the family. Yeah. yeah. Even Tony says in the beginning, like, you got to talk to uh, Junior, he'll listen to you. Yeah, yeah. Right? And at that point in, in uh, the season, Tony and Livia's relationship wasn't as strained as it later kind of becomes. Yeah. So she doesn't really give any anything back to Junior. She just kind of listens and, and soaks it all in. Um, and, you know, she this whole thing with her in the pilot, and we don't, there's no mention of siblings, right, in the pilot. But he has two sisters, yeah. which we'll, you know, we'll come to learn and see. But she acts as if he's never there, but he's actually the only yeah. one who's yeah. there on a consistent basis. Yeah. So it's this whole thing, again, that we talked about earlier, you and I agreed, the, this, this whole notion that you can't please your mom no matter what you yeah. do. Yeah, and he's the, well, and it's also that he's the only one that's around to hear it, yeah. you know? The other two aren't really part of the picture. They're not there. So, you know, out of sight, out of mind, she has Tony to kind of lay this all on. So she just, she knows that and she just takes advantage of it. You're quoting her, by the way, out of sight, out of mind. Was that intentional? It wasn't. It wasn't. Happy coincidence. (laughs) You're channeling her Um, right now. So the show ends. We see the, uh, the pool and you get a minute, a glimmer. Maybe the ducks will come back. They don't. Then it fades to black. And we are met with a song by Nick Lowe called The Beast in Me, which I think if you read the lyrics to it, it's such a perfect ending to what David Chase thought was going to be done. But he put the perfect capstone on it. It was originally performed by Johnny Cash, by the way, this song. And the guy who sang it, Nick Lowe, was uh, was Johnny Cash's son-in-law at one point. Just another piece of like musical trivia. But I can't think of a better song to end the pilot. And that's it. We encapsulated 
season one, episode one of The Sopranos. Do you think we, did we leave anything out? Is there anything that you're, you're itching to? It was just a, a blend of love and vulgarity and poetry and violence. Two explosions. <laughs> yeah, you gotta have the, you gotta, right. you gotta make the studio right. heads happy, yeah. right? Yeah. There's the no explosions. The and ice cream. There was topless women. I, it really encompassed every, yeah. you know, all the risque things that, that we take for granted these days, I think, in in television because they're just so prevalent. And at the time, that was a pretty intense pilot. Yeah. And it, and it did a lot of different things. Uh, one thing that I noticed through the research, too, is uh, David Chase talked about the scene going back to Christopher and Tony, that it was... James Gandolfini's direction to really grab Christopher and, and pick him up. I saw that yeah. too. And uh, and he makes reference, and maybe we'll have to go back and get the, the direct quote, but something to the effect of this is when he knew the direction that this show was heading, and and it's those that those moments of pure anger yeah. and, and rage from Tony that pivot this character into the yeah. unique place. And, and passion, and I think that that's kind of what draws everyone to him you know I, I know that you know there there are women who find him and he's obviously not conventionally attractive but like in the time you know he was somewhat of a sex symbol and i think that uh you know he was just so passionate and he had you know so much to offer and he exuded so much confidence and you know like you wanted to be him as a guy and you kind of like got that he was just kind of cool from the first episode and obviously like your opinions of him change you know episode episode scene to scene but but he's such a strong magnetic character within the show and you know what what you kind of relate to it's it's such a perfect first episode that it gives you a little taste of of everything so a good pilot just definitionally if yeah. you want to get it sold if you want a studio to buy it or shop it or whatever it's got to have this thing that they call universe building mm -hmm. it's got to build um, a universe i think this episode does so in spades you know you know who all the characters are you already have an opinion about who you like who you don't like you kind of know exactly where the next episode's going to go um, my god his mom and his bro his uncle are conspiring against them and you get this tension, which we didn't really talk about, again, because we're not going to cliff notes everything for you, but there's this tension between Meadow and Carmela, where, you know, mother-daughter tension, which is something that is going to become a theme. You have these these devices that were used in the pilot to basically give you all these different subplots and sub-stories that set you up for a, an amazing story that we look forward to telling you. So the plan, we're going to be back here next week, and we're going to be talking about episode two, which is 46 long. This was actually filmed much later than episode one. So everybody's a little bit chubbier. <laughs> uh, <laughs> accents are a little bit thicker. And... You know, there's a kind of a there's a little, there's a little bit of a hum to episode two and ongoing that wasn't in one because there's a certainty here. Yeah. They know that this show is happening. This is real, and um, we're introduced to some new characters. Adriana, I would be remiss. I want before we go. I want to mention we didn't mention her. She is the hostess in the pilot uh, in the restaurant that Tony takes his wife to and his gumar to. I guess we can call yeah. her Irina at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, and she became Adriana because she did such a good job in the pilot, right? Is that, do you have any? Yeah, it was decided much longer, 
after the pilot. They needed to create a girlfriend for Christopher. And uh, she was really worried about getting on the show because she has such a thick accent in real life. Yeah. And then they, you know, she was so scared about that, but it turns out that they were looking for that. So they said, no, no, do it, do it. Yeah. Do it more and more. Yeah. So did we forget anybody else? I think we covered everybody, right? Yeah. Yeah. We got Charmaine Buko, Hesh, Charmaine, Artie. We clearly shouted out the music, which again, I'm going to emphasize, is a character in the show. So I think at least with the, with regard to that, we did the pilot justice. So I guess we'll leave it there. 